0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
2: And I'm Aura Okunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There are lots of questions that climate scientists are trying to answer in order to better understand and save our planet. One of the biggest uncertainties is thrown up by some of the smallest particles. Could a new satellite finally shed some light on them?
1: And it's clear that there's a fork in the employment road for workers who become mothers. But how long does that gender gap last and at what cost? A new study puts a number to the motherhood penalty in different parts of the world. First up, though.
0: I knew that this is probably the moment when they will fire me.
3: In 2016, Dorota Nigrin was a senior editor at Poland's state radio broadcaster. She was a news editor for Foreign News. Matt Steinglass is our deputy Europe editor. But when the Law and Justice Party came to power in Poland, they started making big changes at all of the state media broadcasters, firing a lot of people and turning the broadcasters into a propaganda organ for their own party.
0: They changed their management after a couple of weeks, I think, something like that. And then it came, those big changes in law, which made it possible for them to change the whole management of uh, Polish radio. So we got new bosses.
3: That meant some changes in the kinds of news that Dorota was allowed to put out.
0: They had a very specific agenda, quite a na- nationalistic agenda, quite a religious one. So it was not possible for us to publish something which was would be critical to Catholic Church.
3: For a while, Dorota was able to adjust to these changes, but at some point, she had to edit a story about an incident in Italy where a man broke into a church and tried to rob the priest. The reporter on that story initially stated that the person who broke into the church was from North Africa, but Dorota didn't consider that a relevant piece of the report. It seemed like racial prejudice to her. So she asked him to redo it, taking out the man's ethnic origin. Dorota's editors tried to fire her, but her reunion stuck up for her. They couldn't actually kick her out. So they reassigned her to a boring job doing administrative tasks.
0: They moved me from newsroom of Polish radio to the archive department, where I did a purely mechanical job, which was, of course, relief. But, of course, I felt humiliated as well.
3: After a while, she
1: quit. So the basic story here, Matt, is that uh, a new government comes in and puts the squeeze on journalists working for the state broadcaster, which
3: presumably was, was common at the time. This is the sort of thing that was happening all through public institutions in Poland when the Law and Justice Party, or PIS, came to power. They tried to turn lots of state institutions to their advantage. They turned the entire state broadcaster into a propaganda outfit, including the television station as well. They tried to take over the court system, they tried to use state companies for patronage to give their friends jobs, and generally undermined the rule of law to the point where eventually they faced EU sanctions. But in October, PiS lost the election to a centrist liberal candidate, Donald Tusk, who had been prime minister before. (laughs) His party, Civic coalition is now running the government, and they're trying to undo peace's efforts to take over the state. The problem is that in order to undo the capture of the state by peace, you have to fire a lot of the people they hired and rewrite the laws governing institutions, which they changed, which is sort of the same thing that they were doing when they took over the state. The worry is that in trying to restore the rule of law, they might end up violating the rule of law themselves. We've talked a lot
1: on the show about the sort of dismantling of institutions that was going on in Poland. How to even go
3: about undoing all of that? There are three big areas where the Tusk government needs to act in order to restore the rule of law. The judiciary, the state media, and state-owned companies. The problem is the president of Poland, Andrzej Duda, is from PiS, the party that used to be in power. And he is vetoing the government's moves at every turn. They need his signature in order to fire some of these people. They need his signature in order to get any laws passed in order to restructure those institutions. The second problem is that much of the judiciary is in peace's hands. Uh, The Constitutional Tribunal, for example, is widely considered to be sort of a captured court, which is just issuing ruling after ruling, trying to block things that the new government is doing. The government is finding creative ways to get around a lot of this, but it's proving quite difficult
1: but the new government getting crafty with uh, dealing with the judiciary sounds exactly like the sort of walking the line on rule of law that you were talking about.
3: Yes, the really difficult problem with the judiciary is that peace changed the rules around the body that appoints judges and basically gave themselves control over it by making it dependent on parliament and not on judges themselves. And that means that they've replaced thousands of judges throughout the country over the course of the past 8 years those judges are suspect. The way that they changed that body that appoints judges has been ruled illegitimate by the European Court of Justice. So under European law, all these people who are appointed are not really considered legitimate judges. It's not entirely clear what the new government is going to do about all those people. And in order to change the way that that body works, they need to change the law, which again requires a president's signature. So this is going to take a while to solve. The other two pieces that you
1: mentioned needed real work were the media and and state-owned companies. What about those?
3: Untangling the state-owned company's problem is also going to take a long time. For example, under peace, one of the big state-owned oil companies took over the other one because they wanted to make a big oil monopoly. They then used that to hold down the price of fuel in the run-up to the campaign. The new government has fired the CEO they appointed, and they're going to try to do something about that. But it's a deal. it's a, It's a done deal, so it's going to be difficult. The state media is really a more key issue for the government, because it determines the entire tone of society in a sense. And it's supposed to be an organ that helps you prevent polarization in a country. That's a huge problem in Poland. The right and the left have become more and more polarized and are unable to agree on a common set of facts. They have replaced the top heads of state media. They've done that in a possibly constitutionally questionable way, but what it means is that state TV is not broadcasting horrible propaganda every night talking about how the new government are a bunch of traitors or anything like that. It's become rather neutral, rather boring, most people say, which has a sort of a calming influence. In the long run, they need to turn the state media into an organization that is more deeply rooted in society and has more communication with civil society. And there isn't a plan for that yet. People are complaining that there isn't enough transparency about how they're going about making a plan either. And Dorota told me one other thing about what it was like to be a journalist under peace, which I think is important for people to think about in countries that might face populist governments in the future.
0: We have to admit that uh, Polish Public Radio didn't defend themselves. It is the people who have to defend them. If most of the journalists protest against that situation maybe it would be different i guess all is dependent on how deep in a country is uh, the values of democracy and how deep the journalists feel that
1: how likely is it that all these changes can be pulled off while maintaining public trust the country's people has to believe that all of this
3: is is on the level and right and decent so far, the Polish people seem to be more than giving the new government the benefit of the doubt. Mr. Tusk is now more popular than he was when he was elected, and his opponents' peace are less popular than they were during the election. So it doesn't look as though all of these rather aggressive moves are hurting the government. It looks as though a lot of people were waiting for somebody to take action. But in the long run, as polarization increases, some people are worried that you'll get a sort of American-style situation where people who are convinced that the new government represents foreign interests are going to retreat into their own political reality. And it'll be hard to make sure that those people accept the changes that the government have made and accept that the people who claim to be defending the rule of law really are doing just that.
1: Matt, thanks very much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jason.
2: smell that salty sea air? Have you ever wondered just what that is? The smell of the sea. Because it isn't as simple as just being salt water. The microscopic plant, plankton in the water, is consumed by zooplankton and in that process, the zooplankton releases a chemical called dimethyl sulfide. Basically, it's the equivalent of zooplankton burps. That is the smell of the sea. The more you know. But it's more than just a fun fact. These tiny molecules can cause disproportionately large impacts. The
4: dimethyl sulfide reacts in the air to create sulfur containing particles that float around and rise up.
2: Catherine Breik is the Economist's environment editor.
4: And those sulfur-containing particles act as surfaces that water condenses on in the air, and you get tiny little droplets. And those tiny little droplets, if they're produced in a large enough number quantity density, end up producing these really big things called clouds. And the clouds themselves can then have an impact on the climate. Now, Dimethyl sulfide is just one example of a source of sulfur to the atmosphere. There's lots of other things that bring these kinds of cloud nuclei into the atmosphere. Ash and gases produced by volcanoes are an example. Burning fossil fuels are another example. And just to give a sense of the scale of that impact and the importance of these things, which generally speaking we call aerosols. So aerosols is anything that's very small and is. Floating around in the air. They are, in fact, the largest source of scientific uncertainty in climate models. And why is that? There's lots of reasons for this. One of them is that this interaction between aerosols and clouds is quite poorly understood. The other is that we don't really have a very good sense of the number and diversity and distribution of aerosols around the planet at any given time and how that evolves. So what are scientists trying to do about that? So there's something really cool that happened late last week when NASA launched Three, a new two, satellite mission. One,
3: booster ignition, full power engines and liftoff of the Falcon 9 and PACE helping keep pace with our ever-changing ocean and atmosphere.
4: Called PACE, which stands for, and this is a bit of a mouthful, the Plankton Aerosol Cloud Ocean Ecosystem Mission.
3: Payload separation confirmed. Off into space on its own. Looks like a good separation vehicle, pretty stable.
4: And basically, this is a new satellite that has three very cool instruments on board, And they will create together this updated census of all the very small things that are suspended both in the oceans and in the air. That does sound very cool indeed. How does that work? The difference is that previously the satellite instruments that have been taking these images of the Earth could really only capture a handful of wavelengths. So the way the scientists explain this is it's kind of like if you imagine they had a very small, very limited box of crayons. Pace's camera, by contrast, is sensitive to the full spectrum of light between ultraviolet and the near-infrared. So again, the scientists sort of compare this to suddenly being upgraded to the mega super duper box of crayons that has every single color that you could possibly imagine. And what that means in the oceans is that you'll be able to just get a much more detailed picture And just by looking at these sort of very slight variations in colours of plankton, they can actually figure out what the different communities are and what the different types of plankton are. And that's really powerful because different types of plankton have different effects. So diatoms, for instance, fuel fisheries, whereas other types of plankton called cyanobacteria can be harmful. You now have two other instruments that are mounted on PACE that offer information about the size and the shapes of these particles. There's also how light being bounced off each of these particles polarizes the light. And all of that kind of combines to giving you clues to the identity
2: of these tiny particles floating around That is quite something, that they can tell the size and the shape of a particle from space.
4: Yeah, so you've got to imagine these things again. You can't see what they are with your naked eye, and yet the satellite that's way above the Earth will actually, through a whole load of algorithms and calculations, end up being able to identify the different types of particles. And in the air, you might be able to tell, for instance find soot that's been dispersed by forest fire from sulfur particles that were emitted from burning fossil fuels. And again, as with the plankton in the ocean, this is really important because these different particles can have different
2: consequences on the global climate. Now, Kathleen, you talked to some of the scientists involved in this project. What did they have to say about it?
4: Yeah, so researchers are really excited about this. The person who actually really got me into this project was a climate modeler called Gavin Schmidt, who happens to work at NASA. He's not personally involved in the PACE mission, but he actually said, look, this is potentially transformative for climate models because, again, these aerosols are the largest source of uncertainty in climate models. Because climate scientists don't really know exactly how aerosols affect the climate in an aggregate, They've come up with proxies and they've come up with approximations in the climate models and different groups do this in different ways. And as a result of that, actually, they come out with slightly different results. You know, when people talk about X amount of carbon dioxide emitted into the atmosphere in you know the next 50 years will cause between X and Y degrees of warming centigrade, some of that is due to social uncertainty. But some of it is also due to scientific uncertainty. And a lot of that comes down to the uncertainty due to aerosols. And PACE offers a window into those answers.
2: Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ore.
5: The cost of childcare can be an imposing barrier to work.
1: Marie Seger is a data journalist
5: at The Economist. Back in October 2022, there was a protest because of this in Britain. It was called The March of the Mummies, and it happened on Halloween.
0: We keep working to pay childcare.
5: Plackets read, When things are shitty, we change them with a drawing of a nappy underneath. And childcare shouldn't cost our future. Parliament, a plea to those in power to end the horror this Halloween of monster costs for childcare. Six months later, the Conservative government announced plans to expand subsidies for early years childcare, and the first bundle of measures is set to come into effect this April. Many mothers were delighted to hear this. According to an advocacy group called Pregnant Then Screwed, for one in 10 British women, the cost of childcare exceeds that take home pay. And it's only in America, Ireland, and New Zealand where childcare costs take up a greater share of a parent's net household income across the OECD, a couple of mostly rich countries. But almost everywhere, women's careers suffer as they become parents. 95% of men aged 25 to 54 are in the labour force, but the figure for women is just 52%. Little has been understood so far about how much of this gap is explained by mothers leaving work after giving birth. A new study tried to change this.
1: Okay, fill us in. What is this
5: new study all about? The study is a team effort by a group of academics from the London School of Economics and Princeton University. They collected data to measure the effect of motherhood on women in the workforce in more than 130 countries, which represents about 95% of the world's population. And their work built on that of Claudia Gordon, an economics professor at Harvard, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in economics last year for her research on gender inequality in the labor market.
1: More specifically, how did they get to the bottom of this question?
5: So the researchers compared mothers and fathers with childless people of similar age, education, merit status, and some such. And what they found is that women's participation in the labor market after childbirth in almost all of the more than 100 countries that they looked at. And our listeners can actually see the visualizations of this in the graphic data section of Economist.com. The researchers define the motherhood penalty as the average amount a woman's probability of being employed declines during the 10 years after the birth of their first child. And on average, they find that nearly a quarter of women leave the labor force in the first year Five years later, 17% are still absent, and then 10 years later, that figure still stands at 15%.
1: But you say this is across more than 130 countries. Presumably there's a lot of variation in these data.
5: Yes, that's right. In the rich world, 80% of the gender gap in workforce participation can be explained by women dropping out after the birth of their first child. In poor countries, by contrast, motherhood only explains 10% of the gap in employment. And the researchers also looked at the effect of marriage, which plays a much bigger role in poor countries. In these places, women tend to leave the labour market upon marrying, usually well before they have their first child. Mauritius and Zambia are good examples for this. Marriage explains about half of the gap in labour force participation there. And then, of course, there are middle-income countries, where both marriage and motherhood cause women to quit the workforce. In Latin America, for example... 38% of working women leave the labour force after having a child, and a whopping 37% are still out a decade later.
1: But as regards the part of the gap that really is down to childcare, is it down to the cost of childcare?
5: Yes, so many women do leave because they feel that it makes economic sense to do so. Childcare costs are often so high that they wouldn't have much left at the end of the month. But there are also other reasons why women leave the labour force. The International Labour Organization, a UN agency, for example, estimated that in 2018, more than 600 million working-age women across the world were unable to consider employment because of family care duties, and that's compared with only 41 million men.
1: So one of the factors, at least in Britain, in trying to address these gaps in the labour market is to try and get subsidised childcare from others. What does the policy picture look like in other countries?
5: At the moment, labour markets in the rich world and in many countries across the world are really tight. So policymakers are actively looking for ways to get women into the labour force. Like in Britain, Austria, Germany and the Netherlands are all planning to reform Childcare subsidies or parental leave in the near future. Other countries have already done so. So, for example, in 2021, Canada began offering subsidised childcare for just 10 Canadian dollars or £7.50 per day. Japan is currently introducing tax incentives to nudge women back into work as well. And last year, Jordan set a goal of doubling women's labour force participation by 2033.
1: But is that a smart way to go about it? Is throwing governmental money at the problem a good way to fix it?
5: I mean, money doesn't do harm in most cases, but there's also some evidence that more affordable childcare can help. So the World Bank, for example, researched what happened after countries introduced better childcare laws. And they found that women's labor force participation rose by 4% on average five years after that introduction. But, you know, that's still a small effect relative to the yawning gap between men's and women's employment. And women's participation in the labor market is close to flatlining across the world. According to the World Economic Forum, at the current rate of change, it would take another 170 years for the global economic gender gap to close.
1: Marie, thanks very much for joining us.
5: Thank you, Jason.
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. In the spirit of all the Valentine's Day love, I would love to tell you about our exciting offer, You can get an annual or two-year subscription to Economist Podcast Plus for less than $2.50 a month. It was already our cheapest subscription, but we made it even cheaper for you because, you know, the spirit of love, remember? Follow the link in our show notes. You won't regret it. And we'll see you back here tomorrow.